Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Stories from the Influencer Economy is a podcast in which I talk to entrepreneurs and creators building the next big thing. Really excited for today's episode. I interviewed Alan Sepinwall. He spent 14 years as a columnist at the Star Ledger in Newark and is currently a writer for HitFix. His work has changed TV criticism and journalism forever. So I want to thank Alan one more time for coming on the show. Check out his column at HitFix. And please hit the subscribe button if you're listening on iTunes. And feel free to leave a review. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you want to email me at influencereconomy at gmail.com, I will promise I'll respond. I want to thank Alan one more time for coming on the show. And I'll link to his original blog from What's Alan Watching Back in the Day in the description. Really excited for my guest today. It's Alan Seppenwall from HitFix.com. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Wanted to give uh, a quick intro um, based on your your, uh, your your history as a writer, as a podcaster and author. So uh, right now you're at HitFix. You're writing a column called What's Alan Watching? And uh, I love that because I know that you started writing back in college when you were at UPenn and covering NYPD Blue. Back in the day before the internet, this is in the 90s, you know, wasn't really what it is today. And you built your passion around writing. And over time, you started writing at the, the Star Ledger. Which, and, uh, and moreover, you self-published a book which became a New York Times bestseller. The Revolution was televised. And I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm a writer as well. I haven't published my book yet. I'm in the process of talking to agents as well as uh, considering self-publishing. So I would love to get into that later. Um, but for starters, it would be great to hear about how you wound up at HitFix and really what it was like writing on the web back in the 90s on a college server. Yeah, that was a, one of several instances of being in the right place at the right time. I came to UPenn in the fall of 92. Uh, in the spring of that year, they decided to give not just the engineering students, but the entire student body email accounts. I waited online for mine right behind Steve Glass, um, the, the fabulous, who was my editor at the college paper at the time. This is the, the New Republic? Yes. Um, okay. So what? Steve and I got our email accounts together. I went, um, I started surfing around the internet. I discovered the Usenet news groups, which were, I guess, the, the blogs or the message boards of their day. They still exist, but... Um, I just became, like that fall, I became really hooked on the NYPD Blue Show, and that's an odd thing for a college sophomore to be into, and so it wasn't like I could find a lot of friends around the campus who wanted to talk about it, so I found people online, I would go to rec.arts.tv to talk about it, and one night at about three in the morning, I think, someone posted, hey, I missed tonight's episode, I'm not going to be able to see it before next week, can somebody tell me what happened? And I was up and had nothing else to do, and so I wrote a, a recap of it. When a bunch of people said, hey, that's really good. <laughs> and so that became a thing I did first on Rec Arts TV, then on Alt TV NYPD Blue when the, the Alt family opened up. And I just would do them uh, for the news group. At a certain point, the recap started to be combined with commentary. Eventually, I set up my own website. It's still out there on the pen servers. It looks really, really dated and primitive. And I don't think my HTML coding skills have advanced from around 1995 or so. But I did that. And when I was getting ready to graduate, um, I included it when I sent out my clip package to different newspapers I was trying to get a job with. I included not only clips from the, the pen student paper – 
but also just printouts of things from the website. And that caught the fancy of the features editor at the Star Ledger. This was the spring of 96. The internet was still new. She was smart enough, Susan Olds, to know that this is where things were going. I seemed to have some sense of what was happening on the internet. And so she brought me in, and a month later, <laughs> it turned out that the Star Ledger's longtime, you know, 40 years plus TV critic couldn't go to the TV Critics Association press tour in California, and so they decided to send me. So within a month of graduating college, I was a full-time TV critic. So this is incredible for many reasons. Yes. One is Jonah Carey was on the show. I posted it this week. He was talking about uh, Fangraphs, the baseball website. And that started as a rec website as well. Yeah, rec sport baseball. I would, I would go there and people would make fun of me for thinking Derek Jeter was good on defense. <laughs> oh, you're, are you from, you grew up in New Jersey then? Are you a Yankees yes. fan? Yes, I am. Okay, so you're not a, you're not a bandwagoner. That, that's okay. Nope. Uh, uh, I feel like I have all these friends that moved to New York and suddenly they're like, oh, I love the Yankees. You know, I've loved them for the last eight years since they've won six World Series. No, no. My, my mom was, was a Yankee fan. My sister was a Yankee fan. She actually wound up in our in third or fourth grade writing a guest uh, editorial for the New York Times sports section that I think Murray Chass arranged for her to publish back when Murray was a much less cranky individual than he is now. So is she a, a writer then? No, she's a college professor, but at the time she was really hardcore into baseball, and I think she wrote a letter to the editor about the way that they were do- listing the standings, and they were so intrigued by the idea of a third or fourth grade girl loving baseball that they had to write a thing. Oh, that's awesome. There, there are two framed newspaper clippings on the wall of my mother's study. One is that for my sister. One is the first thing I wrote as a summer intern for the New York Post, which was about, uh, I think, rec sport basketball pro. So, so it so, all so, goes back to Usenet. I love it. And I think that there's something here that I'm finding for the book and the research is people that are succeeding now in this new world where they're creating their own communities and followings, they're embracing technology early. Would you ever have considered yourself a techie or a technology enthusiast back in the 90s? Um, I mean, I, I liked computers, but I liked them more for what they were giving me access to than for the computers themselves. I was friends with a lot of pen engineering students, and they would often have to talk me through a lot of the equipment stuff, the hardware and the software stuff. But once I figured out how to use it, I would then, I just liked being exposed to all these people who shared the same interests that I did, which was a really frustrating thing as, as a pop culture obsessed teenager in the 80s and early 90s, because I could never find anyone who was into the same stuff I was. And so at that point, you know, the internet is where you're meeting people with common interests. So you're essentially social networking ahead of Friendster, MySpace, any sort of platform that we know. Like back in the day, these weren't common habits. Yeah, so some of my best and closest and longest lasting friendships come from uh, a listserv I was on for the Homicide TV show on NBC. And, you know, people were at my wedding who were on that listserv. Um, It's just, yes, that, that is the way we were social networking back then. It was fairly primitive, but it was the same basic idea. So do you think that you were... Like so, you you obviously define the category currently of you know TV recaps, which has become an industry of itself. Yeah. And do you think you were like if we go back to those those rec forums that you had one of the first online TV recaps, or were there other people doing? No, it? no, there were other people doing it before. And part of the part of the way I wound up structuring what I did after a while, there was a guy named Tim Lynch who was a, a math professor, I think, at Caltech, 
who would recap every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and then Deep Space Nine and I think for a little while Voyager. And I read his stuff and I liked the way he did it and I said, all right, I can do that. There was a lot of that going on in the science fiction community because as usual, the, you know, that community is always out ahead on technology stuff. So there was a bunch of Star Trek recappers, some Babylon 5 recappers, things like that. But there wasn't anybody really doing it at that time for more mainstream kind of shows like NYPD Blue. And in a little while after I started doing it, obviously, um, Sarah Bunting and Tara Ariano started up Dawson's Rap, which became Mighty Big TV and then became Television Without Pity. So I think we, we all were having the same idea at roughly the same time. I, lo- I love it, by the way, that your wedding had a friend from a, uh, a listserv. I mean, that's, that's classic because back then people weren't really understanding the power of the web. So when you had your website, What's Alan's Watching, which is what's the domain? Is that still the name? Um, it's the, the domain right now it's hitfix.com slash what's Alan watching. I, I had a blog on Blogspot that we can talk about, but it's just, it, this is something that's set up at hitfix. The, the name actually comes from an unsold pilot that Eddie Murphy produced in the late eighties with, um, Corin Nemec as a TV obsessed kid named Alan. And as a TV obsessed kid named Alan, I could relate. And it just worked out well for, as the title of what I was trying to do. Wait, what's it called? What's Alan watching? That's oh, the that's name it, of the show. What- that, and that's the name of the, the website, dot com? Um, no, it's hitfix.com slash what's Alan. Or, or, but the, the original one. The original the, one was sepinwall.blogspot.com. Oh, wow, you're old school. Yep. Okay, cool. And then, <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, this is, this is the epitome of, you know, people today that are, you know, coming ahead and launching their own media properties and brands. And now you're at Hitfix, which... For HitFix, how much of what you did for the Star Ledger do you think mattered versus how much online work you were doing? And, and also, more importantly, when you had your website up on Blogspot, did you have a lot of community interaction in the forums? And were you, did you have an email list? Like, how did you grow the audience? Um, the audience grew as kind of a fluke. I started in October of 2005, and I told a bunch of other fellow TV critics and friends I was doing it. It, part, it, it was born in part out of a desire to get back to that NYPD Blue stuff, you know, and that uh, the direct interaction that I hadn't had in a while as a newspaper TV critic, but also just based on the fact that I would spend about two hours every morning at the job on the phone with other TV critics talking about what we had watched last night. And at a certain point, I thought, hey, I can just write about that. And so it turned into that. But I was really writing into the void. If you go back and you look at those early posts, there are almost never any comments. The handful that there are are from friends from that homicide listserv who, you know, who are just hanging out. And then one day in, I think, December of that year, I got the schedule for the TV Critics Press Tour in January. And NBC uh, on their schedule announced that they were doing a farewell press conference for the West Wing, and they said that Aaron Sorkin and Tommy Schlamme, who had left the show several years earlier, the executive producers, were going to be on the panel. And I thought, hey, that's interesting. And so I just wrote up a quick post saying, hey, guess who's coming to press tour? And somehow that went viral, or at least as viral as things could go in 05. And it started getting picked up in weird places. I think USA Today's Pop Candy site um, put in a link to it. Some other bloggers came by, and suddenly I had a community and it was a small one, but people kept linking to it, and I had commenters, and I interacted with them, and it grew, and it grew from there. And so do you still f- see commenters on HitFix website, or do you see any crossover from you know, 10, 15 years ago, people that still read you and still interact with you? Yes. I mean, uh, some of it's changed, and some people have moved on, but there are still some regulars who I've, know, you know, who I've been seeing their names for you know, 9, 10 years now. You're like a bartender, and you're serving the drinks to the customers, and... Sometimes you get some turnover, other times you get regulars. 
and then and, and it's then, and it's been nice. And you know, one of the best things, especially in the early days of that blog, was the commenters were smarter than me a lot of the times. They had more interesting things to say than I did. And I would often get uh, hear from other people reading the blog saying, "Wow, how do you have such good commenters? You read comments every other place on the internet, and everyone's a stupid moron, you know, with bad manners." And that was really not the case. And I worked very hard to maintain that level. And I sort of instituted a set of rules about what you can and can't say, and what you can and can't do. And if you violated them, I would delete the comments and you know publicly say I was deleting them. And that seemed to really work, and I've tried to do it as much as I can on HitFix as well. The audience is much bigger now than it was before, so it's harder to police it, but I do the best that I can. So what are some, what are some comments that you remember that are smart or inflammatory? Uh, one of the really smart ones was uh, in the second or the third season of Mad Men, Don is at a party, and he, he doesn't feel like he fits in with any of the rich people, and so he disappears into, the, into another bar at the country club, and he winds up running into someone else who is fleeing his own party, and they become friends, and the guy says his name is Connie, and he's from some town in Arizona. And they get to talking, and within two or three comments on my blog, people are like, that's Conrad Hilton. That's, that's the town that Conrad Hilton is from. That's clearly him. And so half a season before that character reappeared and said, hi, I'm Conrad Hilton, my readers had figured that out, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, where it goes bad is when people start insulting each other, where they decide, like ad hominem attacks when I wrote about the 2008 election, not even about the election, just about SNL that year, because Tina Fey was doing all the Sarah Palin impressions. It got so ugly that at a certain point I said, you know what? We're not talking about politics anymore ever on the blog. You know, if we're discussing something with a political bent, you can't actually discuss the policy behind it or I'm just going to delete that. I don't care. People on both sides are just idiots about it. That's like when you see your friend on Facebook post something about politics and then their right-wing friends take on the left-wing friends, and the left-wing friends take on the middle friends, and suddenly that friend writes, the original friend writes, um, yeah, note to self, no more talk about politics on Facebook. Yeah, that becomes one of those where I have, cer- I have certain friends who I love dearly, and I make sure that they do not appear in my timeline. Yeah, <laughs> hide, 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 hide. <laughs> yep. Um, well, that's, that's awesome. So you talk about, you know, you're writing, you've written for Mad Men. I loved your Breaking Bad recaps. And how did you uh, end up, you know, going to HitFix? And did, how did they end up discovering you? Was it through your website, do you think? Well, no, no, it's two things. One, uh, you know, I... Uh... And by the way, I'm a, I'm a big fan of HitFix. So, oh, thank so, you. Uh, one of my old colleagues from Machinima, Matt Perez, is there. I, I was at Star Ledger, at the Star Ledger, at a really golden period for that newspaper. Uh, we, ha- we had a lot of money. We had a, an incredible murderer's row of staff. Matt Zeller Seitz, who's now the TV critic uh, at New York Magazine, he and I were on the beat together, which would never happen today, um, to, to have two people that good on one beat. So a lot of good stuff was going on, and it was also at the time that The Sopranos came on. And so that became a huge thing for us because we were sort of the hometown newspaper of The Sopranos, and we were embedded in there. And when the show ended, I was the only reporter who David Chase spoke to the next day uh, and things like that. So that was good, but it was really the blog more than anything else that made me known beyond the, the sphere of New Jersey and I started hearing from people all over the country and then all over the world in a way that I never had when I was writing online or just writing for the ledger or writing for the ledger's website. So that definitely raised my profile an enormous degree. But in the, in the specific case of HitFix, I had also gone to the University of Pennsylvania with Dan Feinberg, one of our top editors and my, my partner on the TV beat and in the podcast that we do. And so when they were looking to expand the, the scope of their own TV coverage, Dan reached out to me and said, hey, are you interested 
and it had been a bad time at the Star-Ledger. Newspapers were not in great shape, have gotten in worse shape since then. And the Ledger in particular had been really badly hit. A lot of people had taken buyouts. A lot of other people had left. And it was a lot of trying to do more with less that uh, at a certain point I said, all right, I'm ready to get out and do something else. And this offer came along at the perfect time. What year was that? Uh, 2010. Okay. Okay. And so now you uh, do you work from home or do you have an office in New Jersey? Uh, I have an office in New Jersey. My son was born about a month before I started at HitFix. And so for a while, because everyone else in HitFix is pretty much in Los Angeles, I tried to work from home and it just really didn't work out. If you, if, if you don't have an enormous house and you have small children, it's just impossible to get anything done. And so we arranged for me to rent uh, a couple different office spaces, you know, not too far from where I live. And I bounce around and I, I've, I'm in one now and maybe going to another one soon. And it just it's a way it's an excuse to get out of the house, get dressed, have some privacy and really focus on what I do. Yeah, my thing, I, I, I equally uh, I've worked from home and have a co-working space here in L.A., but I, uh, I used to work with a company in London. So I would just shower and put a nice collared shirt on and I could be wearing shorts or whatever because I would Skype. Yeah. And there is something to be said for just sort of putting yourself together. <laughs> yes. No, I. I taking things a bit more professionally. Yeah, even when I was at the Star Ledger, I was not, you know, before we had kids, I was never as productive when I was working from home as I was when I would go into the office. Totally. And so, and now that you're at HitFix, you've expanded, you have a podcast. Like, well, like, the podcast you- actually started right before I left the Star Ledger and before I even knew that I was coming to HitFix. It was just Dan and I looked at the landscape and said, hey, you know, we talked on the phone for like at least an hour every day about TV Let's just turn this into a podcast. We both wound up at HitFix together. Uh, that's awesome. And then now that you're you're a bit of a you have a a lot of fingers in different things. You're I would say you know your 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 content career like you've you've helped define and shape this category of of TV recaps. You define your niche early. These are all characteristics that I see a lot um, in people like Bill Simmons. You know even Jonah Carey writing about baseball and statistics. Like when you actually, I, and I actually originally heard of you when I read the television or your book, The Revolution Was Televised, through uh, Bill Simmons' podcast. Do you think there, do you think there's like a Bill Simmons bump, or how would you explain? No, there's absolutely, there's absolutely been a Bill Simmons bump. I I interviewed him around the time that Thirty for Thirty was debuting, and he knew who I was, and he said, "Hey, you should come on the podcast." And just you know, if you look at the bump in my Twitter followers every time I would appear on the BS Report. After that, and the number of times I hear from people saying I first heard of you on you know on Simmons podcast is absolutely the case that you know knowing him as you know as tenuously as I know him has been very good for my career. And you, you just met him through like the internet, like you no, met no, one I met, another. I met. I was at the TV Critics Press tour, and they were doing a press conference for Thirty for Thirty, and I said, "Hey, I want to interview Simmons." And and the ESPN publicist set it up, and we sat down in a lounge in the hotel, and you know, we talked about that, and we talked about TV in general. And he's, you know, he made me a semi regular on the podcast for a while, which was nice. Yeah, I remember that. That was great. And so I, I heard through your, actually, so I got your book on my iPad. I was working with the same company in London. I sadly lost my iPad on the plane. And so I didn't make it all the way through your book. It's a first world problem, right? Flying to London with, with an iPad that you lose. Um, but, uh, you know, reading about your book in general and how you marketed it, and me as someone who's an aspiring author, it sounded like you got this really good New York Times review. Yes. That well, helped you propel your book into the next level. So would love for you if you could explain your book 
but also talk about the process. Like, did you want to self-publish from the beginning or were, did you actually go to publishers at first? No, no, I went to publishers at first. The, the revolution was televised. The idea is it's a history of the period of television that I was chronicling, starting around 99 with The Sopranos, with, with The Wire, with Deadwood, with a lot of these other cable shows and then network shows like Lost and Friday Night Lights that really transformed the idea of what was possible on TV put television on equal footing with the movies and with other art forms in terms of respectability and ambition and just, you know, featuring interviews with a lot of the creators and showrunners I had gotten to know over the years in covering these shows when they were on. And the idea was I took this around to publishers. I, I had a literary agent who'd reached out to me, said, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, yes, and this was my idea. And we went around and we didn't really have a lot of luck in terms of interest. And I think part of it was there, you know, the, the literary community doesn't necessarily know TV that well. Part of it was it turned out later on, and I didn't find this out until basically I was close to publishing. There was a similar book in the works at an at a publisher, and so nobody else necessarily wanted to touch mine. And just people were were skeptical that there would be an audience for this. And so I got one offer. It was a pretty lowball offer. I, I sensed not a lot of enthusiasm from that publisher about it. The, the editor liked it, but I could tell his bosses didn't. And they wanted it to change enough that that's not what I wanted to do. And I knew people who had self-published. And I knew that now it was pretty easy to not only self-publish for digital, but for print. You know, Amazon had this print-on-demand program that I found really interesting. And I owned a couple of books made by it, and they seemed indistinguishable from traditionally produced books I did. So I said, sure, I've got this big social media following. Why not? I will do it myself. I won't have to give anybody else a cut other than the, the collaborators I work with. And I tried that, and it wound up working out you know, spectacularly well. Were you, were you, uh, were there a lot of other people out there self-publishing that had reached the New York Times bestseller list? Um, I, I never technically reached the bestseller list. What I did was I made, I got a rave review from, uh, from Kakatani, who then put me on her, you know, 10 best of the year list. Uh, and I think, frankly, the, the self-publishing nature of it helped in that regard. I, I know that she reads me, but I think she was also intrigued by the idea that I had done that. And if it had been a traditionally published book, I don't know that she would have necessarily put me on the top ten list like that. But the day that that initial review was published, you know, I started getting calls not only from my agent but from all sorts of publishers who were like, "Wait a minute, why didn't you bring this to us a year ago?" And in certain cases, I said, "I did. You just didn't want it." <laughs> so then you become a popular guy. Yeah, and so I, you know, I I started hearing from some of these people, and I decided. I had taken the self-published version of it as far as it could go. The, the traditional publishers were interested. It would help get the book into many more places, you know, physical bookstores than it was now. It would be available in more countries, lots of other things that I couldn't do with the apparatus I had set up. And so I did that, and, and that's worked out pretty well. And now Matt Seitz and I are working on another book for a traditional publisher. But I, I can imagine a circumstance where, you know, down the road I would try the self-publishing thing again you know, if all the different elements seemed right for it. In these particular cases, it worked out well that I, I hooked up with a mainstream guy. Do you think that it helped having, you mentioned your social media following before. Like, do you think that your origin on the web was one of the reasons why it succeeded? I think that's part of it. I just think that a lot of people knew who I was and liked what I was doing, and this was a natural extension of what I was doing. It wasn't like, you know, I had written a hard-boiled mystery novel and was trying to get people to buy it. This was me writing about all the shows that people love to read me writing about and just going in depth and getting real insight from the creators of these shows and in some cases talking about stuff that they had never, ever talked about 
before that, candidly, the Lost guys in particular really opened up about how much they knew and when they knew it, which, which I thought was terrific. So it, it was just a natural extension of what I was doing and the following that I had. And I knew that I could go to, I think, what were like 40,000 Twitter followers at the time and say, hey, buy my book. And I knew that Simmons would have me on my podcast, which he did. And that would help. And I knew that I could, you know, reach out to lots of other TV critics I knew and say, hey, would you, you know, would you be able to write a review of this? And they did. So I, uh, you know, half of sales at this point is just being able to market yourself. And I knew how to do that already. I didn't need the, the publisher's team in that particular case to do it for me. And so it was a do-it-yourself example for, for self-distribution in a lot of ways. Because you, you had such a deep connection with your audience yeah, you, and if you, you know, and if them. and if some if someone is thinking of doing this and they're you know they've got like five thousand Twitter followers, that would be a much tougher road to go down. But it's you you got to start somewhere and you got to try to build and you have to know your audience and know what they want from you. I uh, actually that's one of the reasons why I've started the podcast ahead of the book is to get people on the show to talk about for book research to you know open source the interviews. But also, I know how difficult it is to drop any brand or idea on the web and try to monetize that, whether it's music, book, film. And so if you can build a brand or an audience and get your ideas out, workshopping them, adding some value to people's lives in advance, then hopefully they'd be more likely to buy something from you. Yeah, and I think that was I, I think the self-publishing nature of it did appeal to the audience as well, because I would have people reach out to me and say, hey, I'm debating whether I want to buy the Kindle version or the print version. Which would you make more money on? That, that's awesome. There was a lot of goodwill I was getting at that time. It, it felt really nice. This is almost like the crowdfunding mentality, but not crowdfunding, where people want to back your project and support you because they believe in who you are as a, as a writer or creator. Yeah, exactly. And they, they knew that I knew what I was doing. And it seemed exactly like the kind of book that somebody should write. And it's, it wound up being me. So, and, and how did you write the chapters in the sense of the research you did? Like for the lost example, you just said, I mean, you talked to the creators, like how many interviews did you do total for the actual book and for each chapter? Um, a few dozen. I mean, it's primarily me speaking to the, in each chapter is driven by interviews with the creator and or showrunner. Two of them didn't talk to me, Joss Whedon and Matt Weiner. Uh, in, in Weiner's case, I've interviewed him so many times that I was just able to take uh, a lot of different things that uh, you know he had said to me in the past, put it into that chapter. In Whedon's case, I just reached out to a lot of other people who'd written on Buffy and on Firefly and Angel and the other stuff he'd done and basically got them to talk about Joss Whedon and talk about the show. Um, and so that's probably the most sourced of any of the chapters. Uh, it just... It, I had a limited amount of time in which to do it because I wanted it to be released in th by Thanksgiving of that year for the Christmas holiday shopping season. And I have this day job, which takes up a lot of time. So I did most of it in late summer and early fall of that year. And I just, I interviewed anyone I could when I could, I reached out to any contacts, you know, I, I asked John Hamm who I, wh whom I've met a bunch of times on Mad Men. I said, Hey, you want to talk to me for this? He said, sure. That worked out. And I was able to get it done by late October, and I was able to have it published within a couple of weeks, which is another really nice thing about the self-publishing apparatus. You know, if I had turned in a book to the publisher, it would have come out a year later. Yes, so yes. this had certain immediacy. I was able to change things uh, in the epilogue in particular when talking about follow-up projects from various creators. And, you know, like Sean Ryan, who did The Shield, had done a show that fall called Last Resort, 
when I interviewed him, it was still on the air by the time the book was coming out. It had been canceled, so I was able to change that at the last second. That would have been hard to do uh, in another circumstance. So there was a real immediacy to it, too. So that's great. So I'm going to go to publishers you know, early January of this next year, and I'm going to self-publish it if it doesn't get any hooks, because at this point, I, I can't wait. And I love the fact that you're saying there's an immediacy to it that you were able to write it up until the fall and have it come out by Thanksgiving. Yes, that, that worked out very well. I, I've told people I know who have written traditionally published books, and they look at me like they can't believe that this is a thing that is possible, but technology makes it possible in the 21st century at this point. Well, I'm writing about self-publishing in the book, so I may be quoting you. So uh, this is why I love the podcast, and I, I know we only have a few more minutes. Um, so what kind of advice do you have for for someone who's an aspiring author or people that are, want to write books in general now that you've you know, been in this industry for so long and you're, you're a surly veteran when it comes to writing? Um, I, I get asked for advice a lot on people who want to do things I do and it's always tricky for me because uh, I have been the beneficiary of a lot of sort of perfect timing in a lot of situations. Like I got to the ledger you know, at a time when this guy couldn't go to that press tour. I was, you know, I was at Pan at a time when the we were starting to get internet accounts. I started doing the blogging at a time when it was early enough for that. So there's a lot of different things. The barrier for entry into a lot of what I do now is much higher, at least the barrier for entry, if you're going to make a living wage at it, is much higher. You know, I, I say to people a lot, they say, I want to do what you do. And I tell them, well, you need to be prepared for it to be a thing that you do for fun and not, you know, to pay your bills because there, you know, the, the media economy is changing so rapidly all the time that it's it's much harder and harder to break in and do this for a living. Um, but I would say definitely find out what you're passionate about, write about it as much as you possibly can because that's that's the best way to get better at it. Um, and and try to you know put it out into the world through whatever means. Start up a blog, start up a podcast, and and hope that people find you and do what you can to hustle along the way so that other people will bring the, bring attention to what you're doing. Um, and then that's the best you can do. But you it has to be something that makes you happy to do in the first place. Otherwise, you know, go find something else. Okay, cool, and uh, that's awesome. But one final question is, what about Better Call Saul? Have you seen that yet? What do you think it's going to be like? I have not seen Better Call Saul. I'm probably going to see it sometime in the next few weeks, maybe in early January. I, I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful because I trust Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, the two guys who are running it and who work together on Breaking Bad. I, I don't know that a Saul spinoff is necessary. Saul, you know, Saul was a nice little spice to Breaking Bad. I don't know if you can make him the main course, but... You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna wait and see because I trust Vince Gilligan. Vince Gilligan's a really smart guy, and at a certain point, I think if it wasn't working, he would have just backed away from it altogether. And instead, he went from a guy who was supposed to be consulting on the show to being actively involved as a showrunner on it. And because of that, I'm I'm optimistic. But you know, we won't know until we see it. Okay, that's awesome. So, hitfix.com. Check out your podcast, your column. Well, I'm going to link to your old UPenn website in the description. <laughs> um, love that. So thank you so much for your, for your time. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Right, talk to you later. Alvin was great. Uh, such an awesome guest. Love hearing his publishing stories. A very interesting take on having a platform of 50,000 followers, which helped him get his book distributed, where he sold direct to his fans. 
I also thought it was awesome to hear his origins of writing on a rec forum the week after Jonah Carey told us about his experience writing on a rec online forum back in the day. So as always, check us out, InfluencerEconomy.com. I'll be putting together a marketing one sheet with tips for the Influencer Economy. So if you email me at InfluencerEconomy at gmail.com, you can get that. Have some fun interviews lined up for the new year as well as around the holidays. So thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Going to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot. Have some fun interviews lined up for the new year as well as around the holidays. So thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Going to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot.